And welcome to a special episode of the Herbert Smith Freehills Competition Law Podcast, uh, Unbundling Competition, which today we're very happy to present together with our good friends at Mori Hamada Matsumoto, which is a leading full-service Japanese law firm and highly regarded in the area of competition law in particular. Uh, My name is Joel Rubin. I'm a competition law specialist in the Tokyo office of Herbert Smith Freehills. Uh, And on today's episode, I'm joined by uh, Yusuke Takamiya, uh, who is a partner at the competition team at Mori Hamada Matsumoto. Uh, Takamiya-sensei, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh, now, the reason for today's episode is to discuss recent amendments to the Japanese anti-monopoly law. Uh, those amendments took effect in December uh, of last year, 2020, uh, and they're likely to have a significant impact and significant implications for companies that are considering applying for leniency for cartel conduct in Japan. So we thought that it would be helpful to join with Takamiya-sensei to explain what these amendments involve uh, and also to compare and contrast the experience outside of Japan as a a potential guide as to what these amendments may mean in the long term uh, and what companies considering applying for leniency in Japan should take into consideration. So Takamiya-sensei, would you like to start by perhaps giving a a self-introduction to yourself uh, and to introduce uh, your law firm, Morihamada Matsumoto, uh, for those listeners who may may not be as familiar. Many thanks, Joel, for your kind introduction. I'm Yusuke Takamiya, an antitrust competitional partner at Morihamada and Matsumoto. I regularly advise all aspects of competition law, including horizontal infringements, vertical infringements, unilateral conduct, and margin control. In the co- course of my career, I have spent two years in the United States. During those years, I did my LLM at NYU and worked at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and the Washington, D.C. office of a global U.S. law firm. I'm currently involved in a research project on innovation and competition policy, which is sponsored by the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, or METI. My firm, Morihamada Matsumoto, or MHM, is one of the largest law firms in Japan with over 500 attorneys and civil offices in other Asian countries. MHM has very broad client base, including not only SMEs in Japan, but also global experiences, global enterprises like Fortune 500 companies. MHM's competition law team regularly advises foreign clients and handles some of the highest profile investigations domestically and internationally. Thank you very much, Takamiya-sensei. So let's move on to the main subject of today's podcast, which is the the recent amendments to the anti-monopoly law. What are these amendments and and could you give us an outline as, as to how they came about? Sure. Many thanks, Joel. As you have said, the amendments mostly relate to the way in which the culture leniency system operates in Japan. Japan has had a culture leniency system for a number of years, and the concept of leniency has been widely accepted by the Japanese business and legal community. Having said that, some critics had said that once a leniency application is made, there are not adequate incentives for applicants to continue to cooperate or to provide evidence to the competition authority. The Japan Fair Trade Commission, or JFTC, uh, this is because 
the amount of the, this is because the amount of the penalty, so-called searches, that the JSTC is able to impose for cartel conduct, as well as the discount available under the leniency process, is fixed by law according to the order in which the applicant made the application. And it does not change depending on the leniency applicant's level of cooperation during the investigation process. This means that an applicant that comes first or second in the queue can obtain a higher discount than an applicant that comes third, even if the third place applicant has provided much more useful evidence to the JFTC. Accordingly, there were concerns that the leniency system was not operating as well as it could, and that it was not creating adequate efficiencies for the JFTC. To address such concerns, under the new system, the amount of the deduction of searches are to be determined based on the level of cooperation the applicant makes during the JFTC's investigation, as well as the order of the application. The JFTC has now issued new, guide, new guidelines setting out the factors that it will take into consideration in setting searches. The deduction amount is to be determined in light of the extent to which the applicant contributes relevant new evidence that assists the JFTC with its investigation. I see. Thank you very much. So the amendments will incentivize leniency applicants to cooperate once they've actually made an application. What about the incentives to apply for leniency in the first place? So. In the EU or the US, for example, competition authorities have always had a lot of discretion in setting fines, um, but we've been seeing, I guess, a, a gradual decrease in the number of leniency applications over time. Uh, and there are a few reasons for this. One reason may be that there are simply fewer cartels. Uh, we're obviously coming down from a very high number of leniency applications and cartel investigations during the, the car part and transport and, and rate rigging cartels of a few years ago. Um, but another reason that's that's commonly given is that the, the ongoing costs of cooperation are increasing. Um, cartel investigations uh, can continue for several years, and we're seeing that competition authorities are requiring leniency applicants to provide more and more information. So a competition authority's discretion over finding actually gives it a lot of leverage, um, and the standard of what is required uh, seems to be getting higher and higher. Uh, another reason that we're seeing is the rise of follow-on private damages claims. These have obviously always been common in the United States, but they're becoming much more common in Europe and, and particularly in the UK. And, and they now follow just about every cartel decision. Um, so it seems as though a lot of companies uh, appear to be comparing the potential costs of fines if cartels are detected uh, and the guaranteed costs of cooperation uh, and private damages. Um, and they're concluding that it is better to stay silent about cartel activity if it's discovered. D do you think that these considerations will apply in Japan also going forward? Mm. The need for cooperation will certainly be a factor for businesses when deciding whether to make an application. However, another aspect of the recent amendment to the Anti-Monopoly Act is that the amount of such as is that can be imposed by the JFTC is likely to be significantly increased 
This is a stick, whereas leniency is a carrot. So businesses in Japan are likely to be more and more motivated to consider leniency applications. As for forum private damages claims, uh, these are still not so common in Japan to seek antitrust damages under the court proceedings, except for where the plaintiff is a public entity. Nonetheless, this may be a factor. That's very helpful to know because I, I think we can probably expect to see an increase in cartel enforcement uh, as all of the implications of COVID-19 work their way through the economy. Um, until relatively recently, as, as well as the, the general slowdown in, in cartel leniency applications, another thing we've seen is more of an enforcement focus on vertical infringements. And, and that's particularly in relation to uh, big digital platforms and, and abuse of dominance, um, but also in relation to conduct like, for example, resale price maintenance. Um, and, and in that context, uh, something that we've seen particularly in the EU is the use of something like leniency uh, in the context of vertical uh, investigations. So strictly speaking, uh, in the EU and in, in most jurisdictions, uh, the cartel leniency system only applies to, to horizontal traditional cartel infringements. Um, but in a number of recent cases, the European Commission has been rewarding companies that acknowledge the existence of an infringement and that cooperated with the Commission's investigation uh, by using uh, its discretion over fining to discount their fines, uh, sometimes as much as 30 to 40 percent. Uh, and this includes a number of Japanese companies, actually, like, like Pioneer and, and Denon and Sanrio. Do you think that anything like this is, is likely in Japan? Hmm. I don't think so. Like in the EU, like in the EU, the leniency system in Japan is limited to cartel or bit rigging conduct. Also, that is known as unfair restraint of trade in Japan. While the recent amendments will give the JFTC more discretion in reducing searches, in reducing searches, this is only in the context of leniency applications, not more generally. So the JFTC won't have any discretion to reduce fines for conduct like resale price maintenance. Okay, understood. Let's then move on to what I understand is the other really key aspect of the recent reforms in Japan, uh, and that relates to attorney-client privilege. Uh, obviously, privilege rules vary from country to country, but at least from a common law perspective, there is a strong view that in order for companies to confidently take advice, um, for example, on whether or not they should make a leniency application, those communications should be protected by privilege. Um, so the ability to take confidential legal advice that cannot be accessed by a competition authority is actually seen as something that facilitates detection of unlawful conduct and, and leniency applications rather than something that stands in the way of effective investigations. I understand that the legal system in Japan more generally doesn't recognize attorney-client privilege, uh, but the JFTC has said that it is going to respect the confidentiality of communications between a company and its legal advisors in a, a cartel investigations context, uh, albeit in certain limited circumstances. Could you say something more about this? Thanks, Joel. Your understanding is correct. Attorney-client privilege is not statutory available in Japan. 
However, in relation to administrative investigation procedures regarding cartel and bit rigging conducts, the JFTC has just introduced new administrative rules as deregulated uh, <coughs> delegated legislation under the Anti-Monopoly Act and also relevant guidelines for protecting confidential communication related to legal advice and so on between company and attorneys. In principle, only communications between the company and attorneys who are admitted in Japan and provide legal service as independent counsels are subject to the administrative confidential treatment. However, confidential communication between the company and its in-house attorneys may be protected if the company clearly allows the in-house attorneys to provide their legal services as independent attorneys, not subject to instructions and orders by the company. Foreign lawyers' advice would not be protected under the new guidelines. Having said that, the JFTC has said that they may not seize foreign attorneys' advice simply because such advice is usually irrelevant to infringements in Japan. Well, as, as a foreign lawyer working in Japan, that's, that's very good to hear. Uh, but given that the new rules on attorney-client communications in Japan are, are more or less guidance that doesn't have the, the full force of law, how confident can companies be that the JFTC will actually respect uh, those guidelines in practice? Mm -hmm. uh, good question. Uh, it is a bit difficult to foresee the actual practice of the protection of confidential communications between companies and attorneys since the system has just been introduced. This is obviously a very new development in Japan, so we will have to see how it works out. Having said that, I genuinely believe that the JFTC will generally respect the confidentiality of the protected communications because the relevant treatment is clearly described in the administrative rules and they would face difficulty in their investigative process if they were to violate their own rules, whether they are strictly binding or not. There might also theoretically be an argument that the new administrative rules create a legitimate expectation, and therefore that breaching them will create a basis for relief under the, under the judicial review. And what if there is a dispute over whether a particular document falls within the scope of uh, the JFTC's guidance as to the type of communications that it will protect? So let, let's say there's a dawn raid, for example. Uh, I understand that these happen quite regularly in Japan. Uh, how can companies stop the JFTC from taking documents that, that might include legal advice? So in, in other jurisdictions, the typical approach would be First of all, the documents uh, would be separated from other documents that have been seized. Um, second, the, the company would be given a short amount of time to review the documents, um, most likely on the competition authority's premises. Uh, the company would then be required to prepare a, a document summarizing uh, the, the documents over which they're, they're claiming privilege and, and explaining why they think that it is privilege, a so-called privilege log. Uh, and then lastly, if the competition authority wants to dispute the privilege claim, it can be mediated in front of an independent third party, such as the, the hearing officer in, in the EU or 
a mutually agreed lawyer or, or a court in, in Hong Kong or, or other jurisdictions. Uh, I know that the JFTC looked closely at, uh, at privilege and, and how this works in other jurisdictions. Is, is it proposing to implement a, a process like this in Japan as well? Yes, the process of seeking administrative protection of confidential communications in Japan is similar to what you have just explained. The JFTC's guidance explains that the following are key factors to approve the application of administrative protection. The first of all, whether the relevant document is a confidential communication between a company and its attorneys. Second, whether the document is legal advice regarding conduct subject to leniency applications, such as cartel and bit rigging conducts. So, for example, advice on tax law won't be protected. Third, whether the document is stored appropriately, for example, separately from other documents and clearly indicate, indicated as such. And the fourth, whether the party made appropriate applications, including a kind of submitting a kind of privilege log. Thank you very much, Takamiya-sensei. Uh, I think that this gives companies both in and outside Japan uh, a lot to think about, not only in the event of an investigation, but already uh, in compliance planning uh, and maintaining compliance procedures as well. Uh, thank you very much also for everybody who joined us today. Uh, a reminder that you can find more episodes of the Unbundling Competition podcast on the HSF website, uh, as well as on podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Takamiya-sensei, where can listeners find out more about the amendments to the Anti-Monopoly Act or, or other legal updates from uh, MHM? Um, many thanks, Joel. We are happy to provide further details of the amendment to the Anti-Monopoly Act and other practical advice on antitrust competition laws in Japan. So please do not hesitate to contact us via the, our MHM website. So thank you very much from me as well for everyone joining us today. I really enjoyed my time with all of you. Thank you very much. Thank you.